You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Before her father's untimely death at his jungle research compound in central Zaire, he made Ellen promise to care for her sister. Give Sissy freedom to create her own familiar environment, he counseled. For civilized institutions have no understanding of the soul of a wild thing. And loving her sister as she did, Ellen agreed. Your skin feels so smooth. It's like velvet. Just let all those muscles relax. I'm touching you and myself at the same time. Like we're the same person. Is that what love is? For heaven's sake, cover yourself. I think sometimes you'd rather be back in Africa running naked with your nasty little playmate. Sissy needs help. Sam, don't start that again. It was an accident. So was the last time, the time before that. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I do wish sometimes that God would reach down and strike you permanently speechless. You are not my sister, and I hate you. I hate your chicken shit guts. There's a man, and he's warm, and he's wonderful. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Josh Johnson. Hello. Also with us this week is Ms. Kayla Janese. Hi, Mike. Hi, Josh. This week we are looking at the 1978 film The Mafu Cage, directed by Karen Arthur. The film stars Carol Kane and Lee Grant as Sissy and Ellen, two sisters who live together in a large, sprawling house. Ellen is a scientist with a potential boyfriend and a world outside the house while Sissy lives in the house and really in her own head. We'll be talking a lot about the plot of the film, and we'll be getting into spoilers on this episode. So if you haven't seen The Mafu Cage, turn off the episode, go watch it. We will still be here when you get back. 
Now, Kayla, when was the first time you saw the Mafu cage and what did you think? I held back from watching it for a long time. I worked in video stores for years and there was about, uh, there was a store I worked at for about two years in Vancouver and we had the sort of big box VHS of it there, um, which had that beautiful painting on the cover, uh, which I assume is by, um, Roger Landry, who did all the murals and illustrations and everything for the film. But it's like, it was, it was this really just powerful image on the cover. But the title of the film was The Mafu Cage. And of course, I didn't know what a Mafu was or what that meant. And so I was always sort of like, I don't know if I want to see that. I don't know what that is, you know. But I kept going back. I kept looking at it. You know, I was constantly sort of obsessed with this cover. And eventually I took it home and realized that it's exactly the kind of movie that I like. You know, it's like one of those films that's just made for me. That's sort of a um, largely a chamber piece that's sort of like two women in a house and mental issues and role play and things like this. Yeah, I just thought it was fantastic. And it had some of the most amazing performances. I couldn't believe that I hadn't heard more about it, that it wasn't one of those films that people talked about all the time. You know, I had a sort of similar uh, trajectory to get to a point where I actually watched the film, which is I initially saw it in the video store and I mistakenly thought the title was The Mafia Cage. And I couldn't quite make heads or tails of what it was, but I sort of would like glance at it and keep moving on. I never read the back of the box for years or actually tried to figure out what it was. And at some point I did turn it around and actually read what the premise was. And I thought, oh, this seems interesting, but I got some sort of impression from the stills that maybe it was going to be a little bit too highbrow for my taste at the time. And so I sort of abandoned it. And then interestingly enough, the first time I saw it was at Fantastic Fest, uh, a series of screenings that Kayla was doing at the time uh, her book was being released. Uh, They showed several films at the festival that year that were themed around chapters from her book. And uh, the Mafu Cage is one of the ones that I saw and was completely blown away by it and sort of uh, resented myself for having ignored it for so long. I definitely saw this at the video store, saw the box art, and I think I had kind of the opposite thing that you did because rather than thinking it was too highbrow, I looked at the cover and I was just like, oh, a woman in a cage and thought, eh, maybe this is a little too lowbrow for me. And I was confusing with things like, you know, the big bird cage, which is a, a favorite, you know, but big bird cage and just like, you know, women in prison. And I just see this strange image and I didn't even really realize that it was Carol Kane for whatever reason. And I love Carol Kane. So when I finally read about the movie in Kayla's book and I think I said this uh, the last time that you were on the show, Kayla, is just that book was such a source of how many movies I really needed to catch up on and and so many things that I needed to see. And Mafu Cage made that list. And once I finally saw it, I was like, wow, okay. And again, it, it was like, where have you been all my life? This was just a fantastic film. It completely blew me away. So I want to talk a little bit more about the plot as far as the whole idea of we've got these two sisters. They have a a father. The father looms large over the entire film. Sissy seems to be really kind of obsessed with her father. And then Ellen, I don't necessarily get that same kind of feeling that she might have had that same relationship with the father. It seems like Sissy had gone off on safari with the father. There's mention of that, but uh, I think that Ellen may be related more to the mother than necessarily the father, and I think Sissy even kind of compares Ellen to the mother a few times. But that father figure, I mean, he is literally enshrined in the house. They have this 
big picture of him with all of these artifacts, all of this African art that he uh, allegedly came back with on safari. And just they, Sissy has dedicated so much of the house to the father. It's just, it's, it's insane. The, the interior of this house, it, it just looks like a, a jungle inside the house. And she definitely helps that impression by playing this really loud tribal music with the screams of animals throughout the jungle coming in. And my God, the soundscape in this film is just incredible. I think you're, you're right about the fact that Sissy relates to the father and Ellen relates to the mother. And I mean, the mother uh, character is not really talked about much in the film at all. But the impression that you get is that Ellen maybe grew up in a different environment, you know, like maybe she, you know, maybe their father was on expeditions and took Sissy with him, whereas Ellen maybe stayed back and went to boarding school or something. You just get this sense that they were not raised exactly the same way. Not only a, not only a relationship there that, you know, the, the relationships are different with the different parents, but also how that parental relationship then comes into the sibling relationship. Yeah, you kind of get the sense that both of the women are somewhat defined by their relationship to their father, but Ellen is defined by his absence, whereas Sissy is defined by his presence in her life. And I love the way that they set up the dichotomy of these characters, too. I mean, not just the the mother-father relationship, but even when it comes down to, you know, one's got curly hair, one's got straight hair, one wears these really loud prints, the other one dresses very conservatively, one, like I was saying, lives very much in her own mind, the other one, uh, you can't get farther away from uh, the Earth than what Ellen does. She works in an observatory, and she studies the sun, so she is very exterior, whereas Sissy is very much interior. She's more like of the earth, of the ground, while Ellen is out there very much of the stars. She's of the stars in a way because she works in an observatory and she she sort of looks out at a world that's beyond her own, you know. But she doesn't she doesn't and she can't engage with that world directly. You know, she looks at it from a distance and. I think that's one of the things that also defines their relationship is that Ellen has this foot in this other world of so-called normalcy, this thing that she wants, that she just wants to be a normal person. But uh, she looks at this normalcy from a distance, you know, like it's not something that she can fully engage with. And I think that the fact that she's an astronomer sort of is a, is a nice uh, way of emphasizing. Yeah, but what is normal, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if anything, Ellen, it's not as though Ellen is normal, but I mean, it's it's something that gets brought up a few times in the film, like this, this idea of like, you know, she wants Sissy to be normal, you know, but Ellen has her own baggage and her own problems, you know, that, uh, that enable Sissy's behavior, so... Something that's interesting about Sissy as a character, you know, when contrasted with Ellen, is that she's somebody who is very much connected to animal life to the sort of natural world to a kind of jungle environment but the way in which she engages that when we encounter her is in a completely fabricated completely unnatural way and uh, uh, her obsession seems almost uh, to circle in on itself to a certain degree because uh, she wants to have these relationships with these animals and with this sort of environment but the way in which she is forced to do it prevents any kind of natural relationship from actually occurring. When it comes to her relationship with the animals, you know, these these mafus as it is, and she seems to use mafu just as a word for any 
ape that is living inside of the house? Is that kind of your guys' impression as well? Yeah, she does use it fairly interchangeably. With yeah, people. I, mean, I, I think any kind of animal at all, right? Any, any other? Right. I mean, just sort of uh, any sort of creature that inhabits the space, she refers to it as a mafu. And we've got, I mean, got the, the mafus in this movie. They, they aren't very fortunate. She wants these relationships to be very much on her terms. You know, just, just talking about that artificiality. She wants to play with the mafus, do whatever she wants to do with the mafus, draw the mafus, talk with the mafus, talk about her daddy and all this kind of stuff with these mafus. But she does not want to be touched by them. She doesn't, She and she certainly doesn't want any sort of what she could perceive as a sexual engagement with any of these creatures. But she also wants them to do whatever she wants, you know? So she wants to have this natural relationship with, with animals, but she wants to treat them as her pets and as, you know, that they, if, if they do anything she, they don't, she doesn't want them to do, she completely freaks out and punishes them. Yeah, when the one Mafu ends up in Ellen's room, when she's in Ellen's room, she goes freaking nuts. And when, and even when she meets that one the first time, she's like, oh, you're not doing what I want you to do yet, but you will. Yeah. It's a very childlike persona that she has. You know, she wants things to uh, – she essentially wants the Mafus to uh, behave in the way that uh, a child interacts with their dolls, where they are in complete control of all of the terms, and while the relationship might be real in the child's mind, uh, it becomes difficult when uh, they lose control over the situation. Yeah, because the because the mafus are autonomous, you know, whereas a doll is just going to do whatever the kid wants it to do, and it's going to be silent, and you know, so it's like, yeah, so she she does want that relationship with the mafus, where she's like she's the parent of her dolls, you know, and uh, and she can't handle it when they behave with autonomy at all. Which is interesting because that's, you know, also the nature of her relationship with Ellen. She plays the Ellen role in that relationship and will treat the Mafus like Sissy and and kind of make them more of the wild thing. And she tries to be the, the more adult of the two in those kind of role play scenarios, which is not something that she can really do that well. And, and she seems to think that maybe Alan is a lot more abusive than she really is because she does have that childlike thing. It's that whole, you know, if you tell me, no, you're the worst person in the world. And Alan ends up telling her no a few times and Sissy either lashes out uh, against the world, screams, throws a hunger strike, or even slits her own wrist at one point. She treats the Mafus the way that she perceives Ellen to treat her. And it makes me wonder how many mafus she's gone through over the years. Yeah. And it's funny because Ellen says at some point she doesn't like animals. <laughs> so Ellen doesn't even like animals. And she keeps getting sissy these animals constantly just to appease her. You know, And having these large, unruly pets in the house when she doesn't like animals is sort of another strange thing about the way that Ellen behaves. In the Do you think that all of the mafus that they bring in are male? Yeah, they're definitely sort of presented that way because the way that Sissy, you know, because Sissy asks questions and, and refers to uh, them getting erections and things like that. There's not that much of a male presence in the film as far as the house itself. You, you get these, quote unquote, invaders. You get the Mafus who are living there, and then you get uh, Zam who comes in, who's kind of, I would say, a little bit desexualized as an older guy, so he seems to be more safe than other men. And it's only really when Ellen's 
quasi-boyfriend who she's really having troubles even kind of admitting that he is a boyfriend. When he comes in, he seems to really kind of shine a light on just how dysfunctional the house is. But Zom, he's a little bit of an enabler, not as much as Ellen is. But Zom is this man who works at some sort of a wildlife preserve and has been supplying these mafus. And I can't even imagine what his kind of... uh, you know, relationship to the family was originally to get him involved with this. I mean, I assume Zom worked with the father, you know, so Dom is a, an old colleague of their father's and somehow feels responsible for the two women now that the father is dead or gone or wherever he is. He's an enabler and he's not, you know, I, I can't imagine what kind of person working at a wildlife preserve would just keep supplying animals to somebody uh, so that they can lash out at them and hurt them, you know. You definitely get the sense that Zom was a former colleague of the father and that all of this sort of enabling behavior he is doing is largely because he feels a debt to the father who is no longer around. Yeah, and he tells that story about the the tribes people who were asking about Sissy, and of course they remembered her, which just makes her puts her over the moon that these people remembered her from when she was just a little girl and really ties into just how important that safari was that she went on or expedition, I guess I should say. Though I do have to say I admire Zom as far as he realizes just how sick things are. And he's the one who is telling Ellen that Sissy needs help. And he is the one that kind of arranges for Ellen to leave town and he promises that he'll check in on Sissy and everything, but really wants to try to save Ellen's sanity because she's at the end of a rope when this film begins. Zom's the one who can recognize like how sick Sissy, Sissy is, you know, that it's not just a behavioral issue with Sissy. It goes beyond that, you know, and she really does need to get out of that house and she needs to get some proper help and she needs to be able to interact with people who are not just Ellen and Zom and the Mahus. And Ellen must have seen some horrible, horrible stuff so that when Sissy lashes out at the one Mafu that we see, because Ellen comes in at one point and there's a dead Mafu in the cage. And when she comes down at, at another point in the movie after they've gotten a new one, she sees Sissy beating it with a chain and killing this poor creature. That, I have to say, is probably the most horrific scene in the entire film, and it, it literally makes me sick to my stomach when I watch it. But talk about effective. And, and of course, it's you know all implied violence and everything, but just to see that crazed look on Carol Kane's face as she's whipping this thing with a chain, just it, it's so powerful. But then again, for Ellen to turn around, and yeah, she at first is like, oh no, you're not going to get another Mafu. It's just like, my God, how much of this insanity have you seen over the years? She can't do anything to stop it because Sissy has locked herself in the cage with the Mafu. So Ellen is locked out of cage and can't pull Sissy off with the Mafu. So she just has to watch what's happening. How she's treating the Mafu is actually her lashing out against Ellen. She's mad at Ellen. And so she's killing the Mafu as a punishment to Ellen and making her watch it. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, an interesting kind of sadism to it in a way that it's not just this unleashing of rage, but there's a performative aspect to it because it is a sort of gesture being made towards Ellen, um, which makes it sort of all the more tragic because it's uh, 
it's a momentary impulse that is creating a permanent result. The cage in that point becomes a protectant, you know, rather than a, a punishment. And it's interesting to see how the the cage. I mean, obviously, you know, there's there's a lot of metaphors that we can talk about about you know who's really in the cage. Is it the person who's inside, or is it the people that are outside? Those kind of things, and that comes into play a couple times in the film. There's that scene where. Ellen is desperate to get in, and then there's later on in the film when her boyfriend, after he visits the house, is desperate to get out. I like the way that that whole uh, sequence plays out because the boyfriend comes in, and you know he's he's a pretty, I guess, normal dude. We've seen him a few times throughout the film. He seems like a very nice guy. He really seems to care for Ellen. It's interesting that I think Sissy seems to be very flirtatious with him, and even when she starts to uh, lock him up in the cage, I think he thinks that it's more of a game and maybe even more flirtation. I don't know if he would necessarily act upon those uh, that flir- flirtiness from her. I don't think that he would, but um, he doesn't seem to realize until it's much too late that uh, Sissy is not completely innocent. Well, I mean, it's the same with everybody. I mean, he enables Sissy's behavior in that scene, too. I mean, he goes in, he drinks wine with her. You know, I feel like he's behaving flirtatiously with her also. And he ends up in the cage because he doesn't see the threat as being as serious as it is, which is the same situation everybody else gets into in the film, where they just don't act soon enough and then it's too late. The film has a really interesting structure in that it uh, establishes the characters early on and you get a sense of what the dynamic is. And clearly, Sissy seems to be the person who is struggling the most or is the least functional. But the deeper into the film you get, the more you see how damaged everyone is and you start to see all of the poor decisions that everybody is making. And all of a sudden, Sissy doesn't seem so extreme. I mean, really, all of these characters are sinking into the same morass. I was really glad to see James Olsen show up in this and and to see his portrayal of of David because he's a favorite of mine though he's not he's been in a ton of stuff or he was in a ton of stuff but he just uh never seemed to get his due he always seemed like kind of like a what was the Oscar uh from um the Bionic Man uh Richard Anderson was that that guy's name he seemed like kind of cut from the same cloth sometimes like he would be the guy who would show up like I I was always surprised when I watched Commando that it actually wasn't the the guy from the Bionic Man that it was James Olsen, but I have to say James Olsen, he nailed it when it came to like a performance like Ragtime. I thought he was tremendous in that. So whenever he shows up in a film, I'm always glad to see him. And I thought that he did a great job in this. He's so natural. He's so gentle. He provides this really perfect counterbalance between the other characters in the film. And you really do feel like he's just reaching out so much and not. So he's just, he's a tragic character. The Scorpion DVD release of this film a few years ago was just tremendous and just packed full of all kinds of stuff that I was not necessarily expecting. You know, interviews with the editor and, and DP, interviews with Carol Kane, Lee Grant, with, with Karen Arthur. And one of the surprising things was just a lone deleted scene that was available on there. And I found that to be a really interesting deleted scene because there's a lot of stuff that's still in the movie that's that was in that deleted scene and really it was much more of a, a cross-cutting thing. That whole area where Sissy is getting to know that main Mafu, the one who we see her get and then eventually kill to see that 
intercut with a lovemaking scene of Ellen and David, I thought that was really kind of a, a neat juxtaposition to see those two things going on at the same time because it it throws a different light on the relationship between Sissy and the Mafu, almost like they're kind of dating a little bit the same way that Ellen and David are, are dating, though obviously they're consummating their relationship and you don't necessarily get that they consummate their relationship. It seems rather chaste in the final film because they have omitted that lovemaking scene. Yeah, it's really interesting when you see the scene because when, when you watch the film without it, which is the way most people saw the film, you don't know how much of their relationship is in David's head. You know, like you don't know how much of their, you know, how much has Ellen actually established any kind of relationship with him versus how much is it just he is infatuated with her, you know? And it's interesting also because their lovemaking is preceded by Ellen sort of trying to push him away in the same way that Sissy pushes away the Mafus when they try to sort of grab at her and stuff. There's also a lot of physical cues that are similar between the two scenes. It's really interesting. I don't know why they, they cut it. An idea, uh, and I certainly don't know if this is correct, but, you know, an, an idea for why they might have cut it could be that, you know, otherwise the film does have this very different sort of tone in which while you could view Ellen's relationship as more of an adult relationship and Sissy's relationships being childlike in the sense that they're non-sexual or, or pre-sexual in a sort of way, the confusion or the sort of tension between Ellen and Sissy when the sort of potential sexual tension there starts to get a little bit confused could perhaps be amplified by not having a clearer picture of what Ellen's adult, more healthy sexual life is actually like. Right, because she doesn't seem to hesitate at all when Sissy is first, you know, rubbing oil on her back and talking about, you know, how their flesh is the same and how touching Ellen is like like Sissy touching herself. But then, yeah, counterpoint that with the later scene where she's talking about the last time that she rubbed Ellen's breasts and Ellen is, is very, um, it seems like she's trying to distance herself from that. And I, yeah, I'm curious how that scene with David would have put that into a new light. Yeah. Because you definitely get more of a sense in the final film that, um, that Ellen is suffering from some major repression, you know, in terms of her relationships with anyone outside of Sissy. And so to have that scene with David in the film obviously would have confused that as you mentioned. Well, and I'm curious too, because so eventually David uh, is in the, the Mafu cage and Sissy um, kills him the same way that, uh, well, not the same way exactly, but kills him like she tends to do with her other mafu and in this case a very ritualistic thing the way that she puts on all of this kind of like mud makeup and does herself up and has these amazing um like uh, like a headdress type earring type things going on and everything just absolutely gorgeous and just the the club that she has is really super scary but so after that takes place and you know david goes to the to the same place where all the other Mafu go to, that is the breaking point for Ellen. You know, she's done with it. Once she figures out what has happened, she's just done. And it really kind of feels to me like she dies of a broken heart. Yeah, no, you definitely get that scene. And I actually, I just, I actually love that scene when Ellen figures out what's happened to David, when she just sees the drawings that Sissy's been making and she sees the drawings of the different Mafus because, uh, because Sissy is always drawing, for Mafus and 
she sees David's face among them, you know. So uh, to Sissy, they're the same. They're all just these animals, you know, that she's owned or possessed at some point. And uh, but just that scene when you see Ellen's face when she sees the drawing is is amazing because you just see the life just drain out of her. Lee Grant gives such a a, a great like kind of almost understated performance. You know, just uh, she gives these little clues throughout i mean she does kind of she raises her voice a few times she does kind of you know give give a few little outbursts those kind of things but it's more the subtle things that she does like when she's uh in the car and she can't get the keys to go into the ignition those kind of things or to your point kayla the the look that she has on her face when she sees that it's she's not big at those points or she's not you know chewing up the scenery she's doing just these really subtle cues to just it, it it's amazing stuff and it's such a great counterbalance to carol kane who is really super broad in a lot of places but then those moments when she's not you she's kind of like a a wild beast where you just are like okay is she going to lash out at some point it's it's like those tigers that we see at the animal preserve it's like okay they can look nice and calm now but you know, any moment now they can lash out. And that's really what I get from Sissy is that she seems like a, a, a beast that could turn on you at any time. Yeah. The performance is really great. The, the main thing that stands out for me about that scene is that you're not just seeing somebody process the loss of a person in their life. It, you feel as though you're watching somebody process the loss of an entire future that they had imagined. It's a kind of almost like a grandiose sort of tragedy. And so her underplaying it is so essential because it, it there is so much that she is losing that it would almost be impossible to sort of encapsulate that, you know, with noise. Like she really underplays it and it really sinks in just how damaged she's going to be by this moment. Yeah, you know, one thing I forgot to mention when I was talking about the the dichotomy of these characters is uh, I did mention the uh, tribal music that we have um, for so many scenes that Sissy's in, and, and when she's kind of on, the drums are going, and you've got the the chanting and all this kind of stuff. And I found it interesting to the way that Roger Calloway goes the opposite way when it comes to Ellen and he uses it sounded like a harpsichord to me and just the way that that is is so structured again and and kind of I don't want to say cold but it's it's completely the opposite of tribal music but the two they play together in the same movie in a very interesting way and I, I don't think they necessarily play together I don't think you have a scene where you have harpsichord and tribal stuff going on at the same time maybe you do and I just completely overlooked it but I think it's nice that they have these very distinct themes to themselves even when it comes to the music that the movie uses I mean the harpsichord music I think is exclusively used when Ellen is on her own away from the house and specifically when she's at the observatory and it's kind of funny because harpsichord music is not, it's not modern music, you know? I mean, this is medieval, this is a medieval instrument. So it's kind of funny that the modernism of the, of the observatory contrasted with the primitivism of the house um, has this music that's from this culturally liminal time period, you know, where it's sort of like harpsichord. I guess it was, you know, it was a big Renaissance instrument. It was used a lot in the Renaissance, but created in, in the middle ages. And so it's sort of a, uh, 
it's an odd, odd choice, and it's and it's also got a slightly a slightly atonal sound to it, and so which I think creates that feeling of coldness that you're talking about. So it's it's, it's a really the musical choices in the film are really fascinating, and and just give the film this completely strange, otherworldly vibe for sure. I mean, the atonal nature of all of the music from, you know, the more primitivist sort of tribal music to the harpsichord compositions uh, really say a lot. I mean, there's not uh, an emphasis on melody. There aren't, you know, sort of themes that you leave the movie humming. Like, you know, it really seems to be more about grounding you in an environment or in a headspace versus impacting your emotions in the way that music is usually used, which is a more kind of manipulative approach versus a more sort of formal conceptual approach. The movie is just a wash in both music and sound effects. There's really no quiet times in the film, which I think is very appropriate because I think if you were somebody like Ellen or even like Sissy, there wouldn't be quiet times. It feels like Sissy always has something going on in her head. Even when she's probably sitting there drawing, it still is just this kind of chaotic uh, uh, experience for her. And then with Ellen, I don't think that she really ever gets, you know, other than when she maybe goes away from the house, she might get a little bit of quiet time, but really the soundtrack from beginning to end, there's always something happening on. There's not like long stretches or even a few seconds stretches of silence. Like it's just, it, it has no breaks in it from beginning to end. And I do have to say that I mean, Roger Kellaway doing the music for this, it was kind of remarkable. I mean, he, he's a very talented, talented guy. I, it was like two years before this, I, I think. I can't remember when A Star is Born came out, but he was the one that did the music for Evergreen. You know, so it's just like, wow. Yeah, <laughs> you, you can't get much different between the, the, the two pieces of music, the, the, the tribal and the harpsichord stuff that he's doing for the Mafu Cage, and then this, you know, beautiful pop song that he's doing with Barbara Streisand. And the film, you know, has this sort of sensation of being trapped that, you know, you're sort of trapped with these characters that can't escape each other. And the music sort of reflects that in the sense that it's very sort of cyclical and it's sort of wall to wall. There's not a lot of silence. Like the, the music actually contributes to sort of feeling uh, claustrophobic or contained within these environments when you're uh, experiencing them through the characters. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with director Karen Arthur after a few brief messages. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. 
at least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That surprise of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hey. Hello. A little bit of introduction. We are the Film Room cast. I am Albert Wiltfong. I am Austin Shin. And we talk about movies. We just we talk about anything we like to our heart's content. We talk about everything from the very best films ever made to the very worst. <laughs> and we have scraped the bottom of the barrel on the worst ones. It's it's not what you'd expect either. No, no, no. We are the uh, kind of cast for which Birdemic is a step above some of the stuff we've covered. I hesitate to say this, but the room is a little bit higher than some of the stuff we've covered. But on the other hand, we've also covered stuff like The Godfather, Magnolia. We've covered the very best cinema has to offer, the very worst, so don't try to pigeonhole us. And of course, we like to talk about the hot-button topics. We try not to get too political, but we take a political stance. We're people, we have to. We have... A huge backlog. We've been running for about three years. We've got casts on the MPAA. We've got stuff on, like, adaptations. We've got stuff on movies that have been turned into TV shows. A couple of nostalgia retrospectives looking at things like movie theaters and video stores. Proud of those ones. And we've even got at least one cast on a movie that doesn't exist, so... <laughs> got that. Oh yeah, with uh, with more to come. So that's us. That's us. Uh, so yeah, listen to the film room. I have to credit the backtrack. It is from John Carpenter's album Lost Themes. I suggest picking up that album. It's a really great album. But yeah, you can find us at thefilmroom.podbean.com or on iTunes if you prefer to subscribe there. We're out there. Yeah, thank y'all. Hope you listen to us and good night. Night. Wife Jessica, I have an idea. What's that, husband Dustin? As you know, we love movies. Yes, dear, I know. But we also love podcasts. I'm aware, my love. And then there's this other part of us that really loves movie commentary tracks. Get to the point, sweetheart. Well, if we made a movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program, it would certainly be the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet, right? Without doubt. But whatever would we call it? We are the Popcorn Poops. Popcorn Poops is a weekly podcast hosted by married couple Dustin and Jessica Kramer. That's us. Each week we choose a movie based on a monthly theme and then we sit down and record a syncable commentary track as we watch the movie. But what makes Popcorn Poops special is that you don't have to sync up our podcast to enjoy the show, so you can listen to us like you would any other standalone podcast. On our show, we like to talk about theory, story structure, genre conventions, and trivia with a healthy dose of dick jokes. Gotta have the dick jokes. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Music. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for frequent updates about the show, including our weekly movie still identification game. Visit us on the web at popcornpoops.com. We'll be waiting for you, and not in a creepy way. Okay, kind of a creepy way. Yeah, okay, fair warning. I just did a great Facebook update! The Wheelbarrow Full of Dicks Internet Radio Program can be heard on Monday nights at 9, 8 central on RadioFubar.com.
This is a promotional sample. Monday No, no, squish, squish, squish. I'm not having no kids. Squish, squish, squish. Put it in there. Put it where? In my mouth. Carl, the show cannot go on until you get here with the rainbow brain. That's right. Yeah, these oak tree fingers are going in. My name's Fatrino. No, Wolverine, stop! Have a nice day. I have the smallest dick I've ever seen. Here you are, a female director, 1970s, you're starting your career. Yeah. And I was curious how you got into it and also what the atmosphere was like at that time for a woman director. Back then, Mike, there was no atmosphere for women at all in the directorial world. Fortunately, I've always been the kind of human that that uh, if I want to do something, I set about doing it. I'm not giving myself a lot of obstacles. I just say, well, let's do it. How do we do it? And that essentially is what I did. I was fortunate in that I had been an actress or was an actress in Hollywood and that I knew some people. So I was able to reach out to people that I knew and say, here I am. I want to work. I am a director. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I've done. And can you help me? And a couple of individuals were extremely helpful. Now, towards that end, I had already made Legacy, and I had made Mafu. I hadn't yet made the Diane uh, Lane, uh, Lady Beware. I hadn't made that yet, but I had made the other two. So I had, I had gone out and raised the money and put together pro- these two projects and got them shot and had them in film festivals and la-di-da. So uh, there was something to back it up when I went to Hollywood or when I went to my Hollywood friends and said, I need now to get into the Directors Guild, and that means I need to get a job in Hollywood, a legitimate job. Through an old friend, Michael Gleason, I was able to get Rich Man, Poor Man. And in doing that at Universal Studios, I got my Directors Guild card. And I don't know if too many people, too many of my contemporaries remember what a big deal Rich Man, Poor Man was, but oh. I remember that was a big, big Huge. hit at the time. Huge. And that was Michael's show. Michael was a genius writer, producer, and he and I had done summer stock together like 20 years before that. And we used to sit on my bed in the middle of the night, he drank red wine, I drank white, and we'd be drinking rot gut wine and saying, he was saying, I'm going to be a big Hollywood writer. And I said, I'm going to be a Hollywood star. In those days, of course, I wasn't interested in directing. But anyway, you know, a relationship stayed together for all those years. Uh, friendship. He was the first one. I remember he went to the big wigs at Universal Studios and to the big guys in the Black Tower, they used to call it. And he said, I want to hire her as a director. And they said, oh, come on, Michael, fuck her, you know. 
You don't have to let her direct. You know, it was one of those things. He said, you don't understand. I don't want to fuck her. I want her to direct. She's talented and she needs a shot. I'm going to give it to her. So he did. And that was the first thing that I directed in quotes as a legitimate director uh, within the Hollywood system. So what was that experience like for you? I mean, you're already telling me about kind of this boys club when it comes to even getting into the director's chair. Was it difficult even being heard on the set? Well, the first day I walked in, I walked into the set. Now, I've never been on a set before other than as an actress and never paid attention. You know, when you're an actor, you just, hey, where's my makeup? And, uh, you know, I'm done. How come the movie's not finished? But uh, the first day I went in, uh, my assistant director met me at the gate and uh, met me at the door, the big door, when it opened and said, uh, okay, we're starting in um, in the dining room and I've had them pull these walls so that you can, I'm sure you want to put your camera here or there or whatever. And I said, you did what? And he said, I've I've pulled the walls so you can, you know, we can get going and all of that. I said, excuse me, you're the assistant director, right? And, and he said, right. I said, I'm the director, right? And he said, right. I said, therefore, I will tell you when I want you to pull a wall, put them back. What? Well, we're going to mess up our schedule. I said, no, we won't mess up our schedule. Instead of shooting the dining room scene first, we'll shoot in the living room. They have the same clothes on and it's the same actors. No problem. Put them back and we'll move to the living room which we did. And at the end of the day, we went back into the dining room and I said to him, okay, now you can pull those walls. You were right. I did want the camera over there, but that's not a decision for you to make. Now I say it blithely today, scared the shit out of me at the time. What the fuck do I do? And so it wasn't a, you know, these are never easy transitions. And when you move from directing an independent film where you have X amount of people, which is very tiny, and you get on a huge soundstage at Universal Studios where you've got tons of people and tons of equipment and everybody looking over your shoulder and guys were coming in from all over the lot because they heard there was a chick director and they had to see it, you know, so they were all poking their heads in. Anyway, yeah, that was uh, Rich Man, Poor Man. What was your experience on Legacy like? Well, Legacy had been originally, I come from the theater, and Legacy had originally been a theater play, which I saw, and I was just dumbstruck by it. And I immediately knew I wanted to bring it to film. And so I went backstage, and I, it was a single monologue, and I said to the the woman who had written it and was starring in it, Joan Hotchkiss, I said, I want to purchase this, uh, the rights for this. I'll give you a dollar. I said, now, if Ken Russell comes up in, you know, five weeks from now and offers you $100,000, I'll have to match that price. But right now, I want to purchase it for the legal dollar. And she was only too happy to have a film made and okay, fine. So then I went about, at the time, I had a grant um, to study directing a AFI grant to study directing with a famous director and I chose Arthur Penn and I was sitting at his footsteps 
for the entire movie. God damn, what was that called? Wasn't a great film. It was Gene Hackman and Oh, Night Moves. Yeah, oh boy, are you good? <laughs> yeah, for Night Moves. And on that, the focus puller was John Bailey. And John and I would sit and get drunk at night and talk film. And I would say, I'm going to be a director. And he would say, I'm going to be a DP. And he'd say, you need to get to know my wife, Carol Littleton. She wants to be an editor. (laughs) It was like, let's build a barn. You know, I mean, let's have a show. My dad has a barn. And so when... I finished with that experience and I was raising the money on legacy. I took John and Carol to see the theater piece. And I said, do you guys, will you be my DP and will you be my editor and I'll direct and produce and we'll make a movie. So anyway, they said yes. And it was all our very first experience. Now, Legacy and Mafu have both been re-released. I don't know if you're aware of that. A gentleman re-released it. Uh, He had a company in Seattle. He wanted to do interviews or to have interviews in front or behind. I don't know how they do that of of the, the movie. So both Legacy and Mafu have John and Carol and myself and Lee Grant and Carol Kane all doing interviews about those two movies. So, and Joan. So that might be something interesting for you to look at because you'll see the participants all telling regalia stories of the event. Because, of course, Mafu was taken over from me distribution-wise a long time ago. Somebody stole it and had been in distribution for a long time. And I'm not very, I've been, you know what, I said to Nick Rogue once, we were talking and I said, I noticed that your films are, you know, have been in distribution for a long time. How do you watch over them? He said, watch over them. What are you kidding me? He said, I can't watch over them. He said, well, right now, he said, I know it's, I hear because I get some rumblings from my agent that, oh, it's a seven year and you got to sign these again, these things and whatever. And I said, well, you should be careful. You should watch over your things. He said, Karen, if I watched over my movies, I wouldn't make new ones. I'd have no time. And he was absolutely right. So my films have been stolen and piratized and whatever. And what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do? You have to keep making film. You can't, you can't stop. So how was Legacy received when it came out? Legacy was, Legacy came out in Manhattan Um, Actually, Bill and Stella Pence of Telluride fame, who started Telluride, um, they began a distribution company called Kino International, and Legacy was their very first film. And they decided to four-wall it in New York City and Manhattan because they thought it would be interesting for a sophisticated, whatever, audience. Jack Valenti, who was a renowned womanizer, and of course I'm a young female director, you know, connected to AFI, and so he knew me, and and he lived in Manhattan, and he invited me one evening to a dinner party with Molly Haskell and oh Vincent Camby, the head of the ratings board. Um, it was at their house, and several other, you know, pretty highfalutin people, both critics and whatever. 
And we had a lovely evening, and they thought I was just so charming and darling, this beautiful young girl, and she's directing, and oh, blah, blah, blah. And I remember Vincent saying, oh, well, let me know when your movie comes out, blah, 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 blah. So fast forward, um, Legacy gets a X rating. <laughs> And I had to go to, what's his name, Halpern or Richard or something like that. And I said, hey, you remember me from your dinner party? You said you were going to support this. Now, come on. And so he gave it an R. I think I had to change one thing. It wasn't bad. And so then I'm sitting with the famed Renee First, who was the greatest PR gal ever for opening movies. And I'm sitting with her and, and it's critics. The critics are all coming into this screening and I'm so excited and blah, 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 blah. And late, but the, cur- the, the lights had gone down and, and Vincent Canby sits next to me. Now I'm thinking, do I say hi? I mean, <laughs> what's the protocol here? <laughs> you know? So anyway, um, he sees a movie and then I said, I thought to myself, wait, well, you know, before the lights come up or just as they come up at the end, I'll say something, whatever, whatever. Well, of course he just, the minute the lights, before the lights came up, he just bolted out of the seat and ran. Well, the review was absolutely scathing. I mean, he loathed it. And of course we ran a week and that was it because he was the times, you know, So I called him and he took my call, you know, oh, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. I said, well, I'm not very good. Thank you very much. You just trashed my ass. I mean, excuse me. And he said, oh, my God, I didn't realize that was you. Oh, no. Oh, oh, blah, 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 blah. Apology, 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 apology. And he said, you should have called me before and told me that that was your movie that was coming out. He said, I would not have, um, I would have recused myself. I would not have uh, reviewed it. I would have given it to somebody else. I said, well, yeah, like first time director, I'm supposed to know this. (laughs) But anyway, it did not do well there. It closed, um, as did Mafu. They both, or no, uh, Lady Beware closed quickly. I've never had any success in that world, but they hang on, you know, they're good films and they went to all the festivals and they did all of their little dances that they're supposed to do. And they all had great foreign in the meantime, I've never been able to pay the investment back to anybody. I mean, I pay money back, but not what they deserve. Legacy. We were, Joan and I were in the projection booth at, I get this call from, um, Stuart Stern, who was a great writer, and he said, I've got some friends of mine that I want to see this movie because I was trying to raise money to finish it, you know, final finishing funds. And uh, he said, I'm going to bring them and and we're going to screen at 20th on whatever day, whatever, whatever. So Joan and I, like little munchkins, are in the projection booth looking at all these heads, wondering who they are. Well, when the lights come up and we go in there, There was Paul Newman and Cloris Leachman and Joanne Woodward and Rogers and Cowan and Stuart Stern. And they said, how much money do you need? And I forget what it was. I don't know, maybe 10,000 or whatever. They said, we'll 
we'll put the money up. And each one of them wrote out a check for, I don't know, two grand or whatever it was each. <laughs> and that's how we got finishing funds for Legacy. Tell me, how, how did the Mafu cage come to you? Um, I take it that you must have seen the, the play again before yeah. you got this project. Yeah. Well, after Legacy, and I wasn't getting any traction on anything, I couldn't get a job. And I was actually working at Universal Studios. I decided I was going to go into camera, that I needed to support myself. And so I thought I'll become a camera uh, camera person and I'll work my way up. At least that's close to the director. I wanted to do something that was very close to the director. And so I was working in the um, loading room. I would work the graveyard shift. I'd go in at like 1 o'clock in the morning and I'd work until dawn. And I would take all of the, I would load all of the magazines that they were going to use that day. And then I would clean the clapperboards and, you know, get everything ready for the day's work to start. And uh, while I was doing that, I was also trying to raise money for Mafu. But what had happened just before that was the, um, I couldn't get going anyway. And so I decided. I was with Legacy and I was going on festivals and I was in Cambridge. I went to Cambridge, England and had always wanted to see that. And there was a play and I went to see the play and it was called Trois Tenuage. And it was you and your clouds, uh, the uh, translation. And it had been written by a Frenchman, Eric Westfall. It was this play and I was just riveted by it. At the time, I had been thinking, what am I going to do? What can I do next? Because the art film angle didn't work. And so then I thought, as I'm seeing this play, I'll do a horror film. <laughs> this, is, this is a horror film. Horror films are commercial. Oh, goody. So anyway, I decided to do it. I met with Eric. I set up a meeting with him in Paris and... Um, and um, he fed me champagne and oysters. I've never eaten oysters in my life. I loathed them, and I actually ate them. I would have eaten erasers to have gotten that. And I gave him the dollar, you know, same spiel I'd given Joni. And I had a, a, a live-in lover for many, many years, and he was a wonderful writer. And I got him to write the screenplay, and I kept him properly fed in all areas. And he wrote the screenplay, and with that, armed with that, while I was doing my loading magazines, I was out raising money. And I managed to raise the money for Mafu, and then we made it. Now, I haven't seen the play. How does it differ from the film? There's only two characters, um, um, the Lee Grant character and uh, Ellen and... Um, Sissy. Thank you, <laughs> Ellen and Sissy. <laughs> Sissy is a writer, and she's writing her dad's memoirs and writing all about her dad. And Ellen is a homebody. She stays at home and takes care of Sissy. And Sissy does have monkeys that she experiments with, and pretty much that story. There was no man, no guy no will gear. There was none of that. It was just the two of them. And eventually the demise because Sissy's clouds, nuage, 
her clouds become darker and darker and finally, you know, the end. But I realized that filming a writer was boring, so I made Sissy a painter because I'd seen a lot of paintings in mental institutions. I went into mental institutions in London and then in, and I did a lot of research in Bellevue in Manhattan. And all of them have programs for the insane to draw because they find that whereas they can't speak about certain things inside of them and they can't write about them, they can draw them. And so I saw a lot of this work and I thought that's what she'll be and that's very visual. And then I thought Ellen can be an astronomer, which gives her this ability to look and see, but be removed because the character was so removed. She wasn't visceral, whereas, of course, Sissy's visceral. So that gave her something to do. And then, of course, meeting the guy, we needed a love story of some sort and blah, 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 blah. Tell me about the casting, because as I said before, it's such a great cast. Well, back in that day, director, writer-director of Hester Street... Was it Joan Micklin Silver? Yes, thank you, thank you. Anyway, Joan was a dear friend, and she was a she had done Hester Street, and I thought Carol Kane was just the cat's meow, and I thought she would just be uh, Carol would just be fabulous. So I went to New York, and Joan gave me her information, and I sent her the script, and blah 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 blah, and I sat down with with Carol, and. Um, and she wanted to do it. So then I went back to L.A., and at that time, I was part of the uh, AFI Directing Women's Workshop. And that was an extraordinary program that had myself and Ann Bancroft and Maya Angelou and Lee Grant and Diane Cannon, uh, Lynn Lippman, Susan Oliver the gal from Superman, uh, Margot Hitter. Anyway, there was uh, 12 of us, and we were given teeny, teeny grants in order to make a couple of films. And so I knew Lee from that program, and I said to her, here, look at this, read this, and Carol Kane is attached. And she read it and loved it, and so she agreed. And then getting the guys was not that difficult when you have Lee Grant and Carol Kane. Lee Grant, did she end up being like a, a pretty big producer for a little while? She was a she was a documentary director. She's never produced. Her husband Joey is the producer, and he's produced all of her things. Um, and he's a hotshot Italian guy. He took the producerial reins, starting with a, a movie she made at AFI directing workshop called The Stronger which was stunning. He raised the money and, you know, where the rest of us were doing little VHS projects. Uh, he raised the money and they shot it in 35 mil. And I think it's still out in distribution. It was marvelous. And then Lee went into directing, trying to do the same thing I had done, which was break into the Hollywood stratosphere. And she did a couple of things, I think, but, you know, Hollywood was very tough on women in those days. Well, it was just tough on everybody, and you had to come up to it. And Lee was a non-compromising kind of person, you know, ideologically and so on and so forth. And I think she found it very, very difficult to live and work within the Hollywood strata. 
she actually speaks to it in in the um, Mafu interviews. And it was hard for her. And so she decided that she would, or she and Joey decided together that she would move into documentaries. And that's when she started making documentaries. And then, of course, they got hired by PBS, I think. And she did the biographies, you know, a lot of great documentary biographies of great artists and so on and so forth. And had herself quite a fine career in uh, documentaries. What was the relationship like when the cameras weren't rolling between uh, Lee and Carol? Oh, very good. They adored each other. They adored each other. I'm so glad to hear that, just because I know there were such emotionally taxing, I imagine, roles for them to play. They absolutely adored each other. They had a problem with me, and I must say they taught me the greatest lesson ever about directing. I could notice there was tension when I would be around, which was all the time, of course. And I finally said one day, you know, let's come in like an hour early. I, I, we, um, I didn't even say what I wanted, but what I wanted to do was sit them both down and say, what the fuck's going on? Why, why are you, you know? And Lee, who was very articulate, said, Karen, you don't allow us to fail. And I said, what what do you mean by that? And she said, you are so secure. You are so, she didn't say it, but alpha, you know, you're just, you know, everything, you know what you want. You're never, I've never heard you say, I don't know. And I said, oh my God, I thought that's what a director was supposed to be. I'm shaking in my boots 24 seven. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm more afraid than I've ever been in my entire life. And she said, well, show it for Christ's sakes, because we, we feel we have to be so perfect and so all the time. We, you don't let us fail. As actors, we need to jump out there. We need to try shit. We need to fail. And you don't let us do that because you're so damn on top of it all the time. Great lesson for a director. Really great lesson how to kind of combine that with also being the alpha bear, you know? Some of the moments in the film are so chancy and just the, it feels like they really put themselves out there. Mm, mm. They totally did. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the old axioms is never work with what children or animals. And here you are with a, <laughs> an orangutan. Yeah. How was that? Oh, he was amazing. He was such a dear, gentle soul, as you could see. And Carol is a, she's like Bernadette Peters, you know, who I've worked with. And they adore animals. They're besotted by animals. And Carol just had that thing with him. He thought she was the sun and the moon set with her and vice versa. Well, we all knew you know, the only time the animal, a, a monkey like that or an orangutan or whatever, they all have difficulty, most animals, with menstrual periods because it just drives them crazy. And Budar was no exception. We had to clock our, we had to schedule our menstrual periods. And now there were a lot of women on that show. Half of my crew was women. <laughs> and of course, the actresses and myself. So this schedule and the producer was a woman. So the schedule was really crazy about who was bleeding when. And we couldn't have Budar around anybody if they were bleeding. <laughs> so 
<laughs> so that was quite a quite a scheduling task. But other than that, Budar was brilliant and loved. He was a lover, as you could see, there was that beautiful face and the way he dealt with her. Well, of course, she had to beat him. Of course, we say that for the end. But the day that she did it, he looked at her. I mean, I'll never forget the look in his eyes. I mean, what? And, and like a child, when you hit it for the first time, you know, like you've never hit your child ever. And then you slap the child, the disbelief. And then, I, I mean, he was just in shock. And of course, she kept going. And then he just lunged and bit her. And we immediately shut down and took her to the hospital. And they said, what happened? She rang a and bit me. <laughs> Oh, really? And why did the orangutan bite you? Well, I was hitting him with a chain. <laughs> anyway, uh, it was okay, and she came back, and, and we finished it. But um, Budar never forgave her, I know. That must have broke her heart it to do that. Her heart. She's, she cried about it uh, when she told the story on the extras on Mafu. What was Will Greer like to work with? He was just a crazy old coot, you know. He was just a, I mean, Will had done it, been it, seen it, done it, thing it. I mean, there wasn't anything Will hadn't done, been in his lifetime. Uh, he just, the whole thing was a lark, you know. He was getting a paycheck and and happy to do it, you know. He was like, well, I was like, hey, okay, I get to go. Oh, Lee Grant, I like her. Okay, <laughs> you know. That was it. <laughs> it feels like he's having a good oh, time. Oh, he had the a ball. He loved it. <laughs> and I have to say, James Olsen, an actor who is always showing up in things that I enjoy, but I never think of him. You know, he never comes to top of mind, but he was great in this as well. Yeah, yeah he was. He um, he wasn't my top choice, but we, a lot of people we interviewed, you know, those things, when you're in that category, there's only so many men in that category, and they work all the time because they're a certain age and a certain category, and if you have somebody who, who really can act. And I had seen him in Nell, the movie that Joanne had directed. I thought he was very touching in that, and I thought he would be, and I, and I knew he was a stunner actor. He, he wasn't my first choice, but... but um but I thought he was very, very, very good. Yeah, very good. Uh, you said that uh, the actresses got along really well. Was the shoot fairly smooth other than uh, Carol being bitten? Yeah, you know, it really was. We were a group of people, John and Carol and I, of course, had done Legacy already, and we adored each other. Once I was able to kind of break the ice with the actresses and, you know, allow myself more... Um, question and allow them to do whatever you know it was that was uh that worked and yeah we had a and a wonderful crew and uh i loved my assistant director Stu, and i loved diana young who was our producer and you know and in independent movies you know you're doing something special you're not you don't have the studio coming in and being the the suits showing up and throwing water on something that you've taken such care to nurture. And, you know, they knew there was great love there and great potential there, and they knew it was different. Right. So, yeah, no, it was a great shoot, a great shoot. 
I guess kind of along those lines of being different, how on earth was this film marketed? Well, I thought it was a horror film. (laughs) And I got distribution pretty rapidly. There was a guy who, oh, he died. Um, Frankie Blondes, I think was his name. And his brother was another Yablons, and he was kind of cutting his teeth. Irwin, I want to say. Yeah, I want to say that too, or Irvin or Ivan. Yeah, I think it was Irvin. Anyway, he saw the value in it, and he was kind of like, he was like a baby Weinstein brother, you know, when they had that subsidiary movie distribution company where they did horror films and stuff like that. He kind of saw himself in that guise. And Mafu was one of the first things he took, and he tried with it, and it was not successful at all. And and again, Mafu has like legacy. They've always had very good, respectable foreign, you know, and they just never. And then they become cult films. I was just reading uh, entrances. The um, Alan uh, uh, Shriver book where he talks about making a film called Film by Samuel Beckett. And the same thing happened. You know, they made the film, it went in the toilet, everybody hated it, it got horrible reviews, blah, 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 blah. And then it's just become a cult classic, you know. I mean, Mafu comes up all the time. Somebody will call and say, like yourself, you know, I love Mafu, let's talk about it or whatever, you know. And I love the movie. I just thought it was so beautiful. It is so well shot. Yeah, well, that's John Bailey. Hello. <laughs> yeah, just it, it kind of has like a, a dreamlike quality to it, and you keep thinking, and effectively so, that it's going to go into a nightmare territory. So you, you are right there on that precipice so often. Yeah, very true. Very true, Mike. Yeah. So people call you up, they ask you about Legacy, they ask you about Bafu and things. What are the, some of the ones that you would rather talk about or, or like you would like people to say, oh, yeah, and you also did this other thing that I really enjoy, too? Well, I love Lady Beware. I think that was my favorite. And sadly, the financiers took it away from me and, and turned it into a crock of shit. But I loved it. I thought that was really a worthwhile piece. And I thought Diane Lane was just extraordinary in it. And Cotter Smith and um, Michael... Michael Woods? Michael Woods. And that was another one where we had entire creative freedom. And when you have that and you can just dream and bring your dreams to life, it's, um, it's pretty powerful stuff for the people who are on the creating end of it. My... Um, husband was the cameraman on that, the DP. So that was an additional thing that he and I got to share that experience together. And um, so that's just a a very beloved film of mine. And we've made a lot of others together. He and I have been together for 31 years and we've made movies together for 31 years. So, I mean, you know, everything from Rape of Richard Beck, um, where Richard Crenna won an Emmy, to um, Bridge to Silence with Lee Remick. I'm looking at all my slates on the wall now, otherwise I couldn't pull this up. Um, Oh, God. Shadow of a Doubt, Hitchcock remake, The Secret with Kurt Douglas, Cracked Up, the first crack cocaine movie. 
me a child of Hollywood, Patty Patsy Kinsett and Dennis Boutsakaris, Dead by Sunset. Uh, that was um, the Rule and Rule film. True Women, of course, one of the greats with Angelina Jolie and uh, Dana Staircase. Are you talking Staircase? With those two, Song of the Lark with Mercedes Rule. No, that was Looking for Lost Bird. Was it or Song of Yeah, that was Looking for... Oh, yeah, but Song of the Lark was brilliant, too. That was... And The Locket with Vanessa Redgrave. Oh, God, honey, there's so many. They're so wonderful, all of them. Loved them all. And, of course, Cagney and Lacey. Loved that. <laughs> I was a big fan of Cagney and Lacey when I saw it the first time around without really realizing, because to me, you know, it was one of my first... TV experiences with uh, cop shows, and so it wasn't that unusual for me just because it just was on TV, and it took me so many years to kind of realize how groundbreaking that show was. Yeah, it really was. Barney Rosenswag and, uh, oh God, what was her name, the woman who actually did it? Patricia, she was the writer, and she then went on to have quite a great career as a producer, a writer-producer. And Barney and she were married, and she, Barney kind of ruffled his feathers and got out there and took over the show, and and they divorced, and he married Sharon, of course, but then her career just really blossomed, and if you look her up, you'll see who it is she was the but anyway, it was a great show, and Peter Lefcourt, and oh, some fabulous people. Terry Louise Fisher. I mean, oh, some of the people that were on that show as writers were just stunners. Actually, I watched your uh, Shadow of a Doubt probably about a, uh, maybe two years ago. We were, did an episode on uh, the Hitchcock film, so I had to compare. Well, you know, the, the tragedy for me was that the person who was to star in it was Powers Booth. Oh, wow. Can you imagine? And then, of course, later I was able to work with Powers and True Women. I don't know how Mark, I don't know, you never know these under underpinnings of what happens in network games, you know, as to why one goes away. But when I signed on, it was Powers Booth. Can you even imagine what he would have done with that role? Gives you shivers, doesn't it? All right, darling, I'm going to go have a drink. All righty. And you do, too. Okay. It's been a joy. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. You have a great night. All right. Thanks. We're back, and we're talking about the Mafu Cage. Josh, you talked about some screenings that you went to uh, that were based directly on Kayla's book. Kayla, I'm curious as far as what were those screenings like? Because I know you've done screenings uh, in regard to House of Psychotic Women quite a few times, it seems like you probably had a really good audience for it, though, when it came to Fantasia, because these are kind of, this is an audience who is primed for unusual films. So how was the reaction when you showed a, a film like The Mafu Cage to the group? I mean, well, the, the Mafu Cage played at um, at a couple of the different book launches that I did around the country and, um, and even overseas. And it was definitely one of those ones where I think Fantastic Fest may have been the first ones to play it. Um, and uh, that's where a lot of people sort of heard about it and maybe saw it for the first time and started reviewing it. And then a lot of the other theaters were like, Oh, I'm interested in that film. That sounds amazing. And so it sort of got this, this, uh, this new life because of the book in a sense, which was really great because I don't think the DVD of the film had come out when the book came out. 
I think it came out after. So I think that it was, uh, I think the book coming out helped people, you know, become interested in the film again. And uh, so a lot of the people at Fantastic Fest just, you know, loved it and came up to me afterwards and were like, oh, that was amazing. And Josh, you know, Josh was one of them, you know, who we talked about, uh, you know, the play that it's based on and things like that. And uh, whatever happened to that and had anyone ever performed it since then and stuff. There was one screening in New York, Tribeca 92Y did a, a series of a couple of films based on the book and the Mapu Cage was one of them. And I was sort of getting ready to go introduce the screening and people were lining up and I was in the back room and somebody came in and said, Karen Arthur is out front. And I was just like, oh my God, really? That's amazing. You know, because I had never, I didn't really interview people for the book. I didn't go out of my way to find out production information about the films that was more, you know, critical or theoretical or whatever. So I was really excited that Karen Arthur was there and I got out, I went out to the lobby and she was actually upset that the film was playing because apparently she found out about it in the paper and didn't know. And supposedly, um, you know, the rights at some point reverted back to her. So she owned the film. You know, so she was like, at first she was just like, what the hell? She was really mad. She's like, how did I have to read about this in the paper? You know, but I think that I was just so excited to meet her that it sort of, um, you know, she sort of slowly felt a bit better. And I was just like, oh, my God, I'm so excited you're here. And would you be willing to talk to the audience and stuff like that? And so eventually she was like, OK, OK, I'll talk to the audience. You know, and she came and did an amazing Q&A where she told us these stories that I wish that I had known before I wrote the book, um, like one of the things she was telling us was that the monkeys were going crazy because she said, because I'm a woman director, I like to have a lot of uh, women on my crew, you know, so there were a lot of women working on the film and they were all on their period at the same time. And so the monkeys started going insane. And so we had to start like scheduling all the women to work at different times to sort of, because the monkey could smell it and was going crazy for all the the women. And uh, so, and so she told this story at Tribeca 92I and the audience was just dying, you know, it was so, and it was just so great to have her, um, you know, like it was weird how it happened, but it was great to have her there uh, sort of being able to shine in that way with this film that people hadn't heard of for a long time. So, yeah, I think they had the same problem on uh, Lost in Space, didn't they? What problem? Oh, with with monkeys? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, maybe I hadn't heard that. That was one of those weird pieces of lore that I remember hearing a long time ago, and I didn't even remember there was a monkey on Lost in Space. And then I was like, oh yeah, I guess there was. And then with the three uh, female uh, leads on that, I it would, uh, yeah, that would drive the monkey crazy apparently. <laughs> Josh, what was that uh, screening like for you on the other end of it? Well, for me, I, I kind of went into it. Uh, there were several other screenings that had happened as part of the sidebar at the festival. I want to say maybe Secret Ceremony was one of them as well or, or something. Um, so I, I was kind of just going because I was interested in the sidebar. The Entity had showed, you know, some of them were films that I had seen before. But I was really intrigued by the concept of Kayla's book. And I was really interested in seeing the films that were going to show around it. But the Mafu Cage was probably the one that I had the least excitement about just because I hadn't seen it before. I really hadn't read a lot about it and it hadn't ever been something that was like really high up on my list of things to see. And really almost from the opening frames, uh, I, I 
couldn't believe how much it was in line with my sensibility and how much it was exactly the kind of film that I actually really love. And I, I was so disappointed in myself and so shocked that I'd made it so long without having experienced it. And uh, I was sitting with a number of friends uh, at the screening. And after it was over, you know, what I remember more than anything was just like turning and the conversations that ensued afterwards, which, you know, we had all seen it for the first time and we had all been similarly affected by it. You know, it was one of those experiences where after you've seen the film, you can't believe that you haven't heard more about it, that more people haven't been recommending it to you and that there isn't more writing on the film out there because it seemed so obvious that this was uh, an important work that hadn't really uh, achieved the level of notoriety that it deserved. So I, I remember more than anything else just being really shocked by how much it exceeded my expectations. You know, I went in more or less just curious and left really thinking it was one of the best films I'd seen in a very long time. And usually in the second half of the show, I will ask folks if there are other movies that kind of remind you of the Mafu Cage or vice versa. Can you guys think of anything else? Because I, I have a hard time really coming up with another movie that is comparable to this. Well, I think, I mean, Josh mentioned it, but one of the other films that played in that series at Fantastic Fest was Secret Ceremony by Joseph Losey. And that's one that I think of as, I mean, the the, the sort of primitive elements of, of the film are not there, but that film has a very similar sort of role play scenario between it's between Liz Taylor and Mia Farrow and they're sort of role playing a mother and daughter in this big old house, this big amazing house. And Singapore Slink, you know, is another one that I think of as kind of it's a much newer film, but it's um, you know, that also has two women that are in this house and this they have this sort of nebulous relationship and you don't really know whether they're mother and daughter or sisters or lovers or what they are and there's a lot of history on it there's nothing exactly like the mafu cage but there are definitely these types of films that are about women in enclosed environments that are just um where their neurosis gets to sort of uh run free you know and it's and it's but the mafu cage you know, and they, they're great films for performance, you know, like they're great films for women being able to give these like really epic performances. And uh, and the Mafu Cage just ranks right up there with some of the best performances I've ever seen. You know? It's hard to come up with comparisons because the Mafu Cage is such a singular work. I mean, I, I think one of the reasons that we're talking about it in such an excited animated way is that it is a very unique film that has a very distinctive point of view that you don't encounter a lot. But the the one film that actually comes to mind in a way, because it also deals, uh, although in a very different circumstance, but it also deals with uh, two women of different ages uh, who are codependent and sort of influencing each other's neurosis in different ways. I actually think an interesting comparison is uh, the Maisel's documentary, Grey Gardens. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But other than that, not much. I mean, you can kind of draw some comparisons, but I mean, it, it's a fairly unique film. You can sort of take certain things about the setup or the environment and compare them to something else. But in terms of the tone of the film, the content of the film, it, it really sort of stands alone. I mean, the amazing thing about this movie is that as long ago as it was made, I mean, there's really been almost nothing in the time that has transpired since then where you could really say somebody did something that really felt like the Mafu cage. I mean, it was this sort of very powerful voice that emerged and really hasn't been replicated. I would like it if there was more talk about Karen Arthur, except I don't really know that much about her subsequent work outside of some TV things. But I do think it's a bit, you know, it's a bit weird to make su such a, uh, 
such a strong uh, statement as a film like the Maku Cage and then not, you know, become a major voice in film that everybody knows, you know, it's sort of like, um, and it was seemed to be the fate of a lot of women directors that were uh, making films in the seventies that, you know, they would make this some amazing feature that was getting critical raves, you know, like Claudia Wheel's movie Girlfriends, you know, is, is another example of like, you know, how are, how did these women not end up becoming major directors, you know? And a lot of them ended up get, finding work in television and doing amazing work, but just not getting the, the accolades that and the career opportunities that they deserve. You know, it was such a small number of female directors in the 70s. It's interesting that as I was trying to reach out to Lee Grant to set up an interview about this, which, as you can tell, didn't work out, the women who I talked to about setting up the interview with, with Lee Grant – also brought up maybe setting up something with Carol Kane and that she and Carol Kane were uh, presently working on a, uh, I think maybe like behind the scenes or something of Hester Street, which is another one of a few films directed by a women, uh, woman director, Joan Micklin Silver. So it's just like this kind of like weird small world as far as, you know, these, these women who are working with these female directors of the seventies and just, you know, how they're, careers might have progressed and yeah just to see that karen arthur did the the two films in the 70s and one film in the 80s and the rest was television work which you know i don't want to denigrate television work but just yeah these were such strong films and i mean legacy is a is a great kind of uh companion piece to mafu just this whole idea of another woman kind of losing her mind but it's done in a different way but i i love that uh there is this theme to her work and i yeah again i I wish that there had been more from her and and especially after something like the what what's the follow-up to the mafu cage because it just it blew me away I, like i said before when i saw it the first time i was like how how have i missed this how did, have i lived all these years without having this in my life all right we're going to take another break and we're going to play a trailer for next week's show i'm looking for a place where the dogs don't bite Children don't cry, and everything always goes just right. And brothers don't fight. Maybe it's just over that hill. Maybe it ain't. Maybe there's gold at the end of this rainbow. Maybe 
That's right. We'll be back next week with an episode about Sunny Boy, where I'll be joined by Maitha McDonough and Mike Malloy. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Josh and Kayla. So, Kayla, what has been keeping you busy lately? Um, well, I'm actually living and working in Melbourne, Australia at the moment, um, which is where I'm calling in from. And I'm working for a festival called Monster Fest, um, which is the brainchild of Monster Pictures, a distributor here in Australia. And so it's a four-day genre film festival that I get to be the artistic director of, so I get to play a lot with that. If people go to monsterfest.com.au, we have a bunch of announcements that will be starting to trickle out next week about the about this week's lineup, and or sorry, this year's lineup, and it takes place in November. Uh, I'm working on that. I'm working on a couple of book projects. Spectacular Optical has its next anthology book, which is called Yuletide Terror, that's all about Christmas horror on film and television. And so that's in the editing stages right now, right now, keeping busy with a lot of projects. Tell me about the other spectacular optical projects, because you have done, what, two so far? Yeah, so the, the first one was a book called Kid Power, and it's an anthology book of essays and interviews all about sort of kids in cult film and TV. And it wasn't specifically about children's films although that did end up being the, the emphasis of the book, you know, but there's also um, articles about like Nicoletta Elmi, the girl who's in a lot of the Italian uh, genre films, the little redheaded girl. Um, there's interviews with the kid who played the original Jacob Tutu from the seventies version of Jacob Tutu meet the hooded fang. There's an interview with John Huff about his Disney films that he made in the seventies, um, all kinds of stuff. So, and then the second book was uh, satanic panic, pop cultural paranoia in the 1980s and that one its focus is pop culture but is looking at the satanic panic of the 80s and how that uh, showed up through film television video games board games comics uh made for tv films you know like all music all kinds of things um and that one did really well it sold out really fast and so fab press in the uk has actually sub-licensed it and they are now distributing it in a new edition and uh, and it looks even way better than than my edition you know because fab press makes amazing books so so it's a beautiful edition they've made well they make amazing books like house of psychotic Women. <laughs> yeah. are you still supporting the book are you still doing any sort of uh, events around that for house of psychotic women yeah occasionally there was there was actually just one in in march in brussels the off-screen festival invited me there and they played something like 30 films it was insane. They did a Whoa. they did a huge retrospective, and they even had like the festival bar transformed into like the bar of psychotic women with all kinds of decorations related to the films. How about you, Josh? What has been keeping you out of trouble? Well, I produced the uh, DVD supplements for a release that's coming out September twenty seventh uh, through Intervision Picture Corporation. It's a little known Canadian. Uh, cable access movie from 1995 called Phobe, the Xenophobic Experiments. And it's uh, shot in the Niagara region for $250 Canadian, 
but they attempt some incredibly ambitious things like pyrotechnics and crane shots. Uh, it's an incredibly ambitious, no budget movie. And uh, there's going to be, you know, audio commentary interviews, a making of documentary and a lot of stuff. So uh, you can pick that up September 27th. And then I uh, am just finishing up a screenplay that I'm hoping to shoot next year. And I'm working on a documentary about uh, extraterrestrial sex toys. Now, is this like sex toys that are actually from out of this world or that, that maybe they have a theme? Like right. That? They're catering to people that have a fantasy of uh, being impregnated by an extraterrestrial. So the, the sex toys themselves are designed to recreate that experience. But they are from this earth. In fact, they're from New Hampshire. <laughs> you should have a premiere at Roswell because uh, I've I've – been in the place when people have come in to tell their stories and have them documented, and I think it would be a hot seller. I mean, the after party would certainly be a lot of fun. Well, cool. Is is this uh, Niagara Shot horror film, is that something that we're going to have to talk about, like how we talked about science craze? I'll tell you what, Mike. Uh, I will send you a copy, and then you tell me. I still can't get that theme song from Science Crazed out of my head, just so you know. You're welcome. All right. Well, thank you so much, guys, for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And thanks to everybody for listening to the show. Be sure to stop by the website, projection-booth.com, for more information about the show, about Kayla, about Josh. So all kinds of good stuff. And also be sure to hit up uh, patreon.com slash projection booth to donate to the show. Every donation helps the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.